Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we look at verses 16 through 21. Pastor Josh LaGrange will be delivering his sermon entitled, The Table of the Lord. context. The context kind of through um, chapters 8, 9, and 10 is this discussion that was um, relevant in their day, the Corinthian believers, of should a Christian participate in a festival in honor to a false god and eat of meat that had been made as a sacrifice to these false gods. So I'll bring that back up here in just a little bit. But one of the things we're doing in this year is uh, something that churches need to do every few years, and that is work through the theology of the Lord's Supper. So this is part five um, in what we've been working through in why did God give us this ordinance? What is to be preached in it? Um, and I hope that as we've been going through these things, that not only um, are we seeing the truths, but seeing the beauty, seeing the glory uh, of those truths. Um, the truths we have here this morning, I find delightful. Hope that it will help your heart lead you to worship. So let's read the text, pray and ask for God's help. First Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, O oh God, that you will give us of your spirit. Father, that we will come to the right conclusions. You'll help me to be faithful to your word. Say only what is true and right and helpful and set a guard over my lips, O oh God. Um, but Lord, we pray that not only would we see the truths, but God, that then you will give us more of yourself. We'll come to know you through your truths. Father, I pray, show us your glory. Show us more of your character. Show us more of who you are. Show us more of the glories of the gospel, how you have saved souls and revealed the greatest part of who you are. Father, I pray that as we see your truths and we comprehend who you are, that Lord, we will worship you, bow ourselves before you, glory in Christ. Father, we pray you accomplish the conviction of sin and um, uh, all the other works that need to happen, the sanctifying. But Father, I, I pray that we will uh, draw great comfort, great strength, great joy from the truths that you show so that when we partake of the Lord's table, Father, we do so with greater worship. And then for the days ahead, Lord, we worship in a, in a greater way, Lord, because of what you show us. So Father, please give your grace pour out your spirit and enable us to worship here. We pray, protect this time. Bless it, we ask. We lift all of it up to you in the name of Christ. Amen. When Saul was hunting David, Saul in his blind jealousy led him to eventually make war against David and his men. And that act of Saul making war against David and his men ended up leading to the defeat of Saul's army, Saul himself being killed, and much of Saul's household being decimated. And that included Saul's son, Jonathan, who had become closest of friends with David. If you remember, David and Jonathan had uh, entered into a covenant of friendship with one another. Uh, they had vowed to each other that they would do good for one another and each other's families for the rest of their days. Well, when the battle broke out, 
between David's army and Saul's army, Jonathan had a son and a nurse who took care of that son. When the battle broke out, this son's nurse feared that David would come and kill all of Jonathan's family. Now, David was never going to do this, but she feared it would happen. So she picked up Jonathan's son and in haste, she took off fleeing. And in just a terribly sad accident, she tripped and dropped him. And at a young age, young Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son became lame for life. Well, fast forward some years into the future. David's throne is secure. All the battles from some of the contesters and rivals and such were, were all finished. And David sat on the throne in security. And he thought back about his now dead friend, Jonathan. And he sent somebody to inquire, is there anyone left of Jonathan's household that I can show kindness to in order to keep this covenant? Well, after investigation, it was found that this Mephibosheth was still alive. And so David sent and had Mephibosheth brought to David. But you can only imagine what Mephibosheth was thinking as he rolls up into David's house. Now, this is the ancient world. Now, let's not kid ourselves, okay? Uh, politics today is still just about as savage. They just hide it better today than what they did uh, in ancient times. But in ancient times, it was common practice the family, the household, the children of rivals would often be slaughtered and it wasn't even hidden. Mephibosheth enters David's presence and he is thinking the worst. But David surprises him when he says, do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father and you shall eat at my table always. And so it was that a man who had no reason to expect kindness, a man who was living in poverty and by his own efforts was unable to provide for himself, was brought into the house of royalty, given a seat at the king's table all of his days. Well, Christian, call me Mephibosheth. This is your and I's story. The story of the believer is, and so it was, that men and women who had no reason to expect kindness from God, who were in poverty eternally, were completely unable to provide for ourselves what we needed to be right with the living God, were brought into the house of royalty, given a seat at the king's table, and invited to eat all of our days. And in the Lord's Supper... There is a picture of this beautiful truth that is there. That our God, when he saves us, invites us to his table. Now, let me kind of back up a little bit, kind of lay the foundation for somebody who may be new to studying the Bible, kind of build on it there and bring it to this point so we understand what is being said here. You and I are not okay on our own. We are wrecked and ruined before God. Our sin has made a separation between us. We're natural born sinners and at the very root of our hearts is not goodness. At the very root of our hearts is a rebellion against the God who made us. We deserve wrath. I realize if you have not studied the Bible before, everything you hear from all the voices around you does nothing but tell you, you're good, you're good, you're good, you're good. The living God looks down from heaven and has spoken and said, you and I deserve wrath. And if God had done nothing, wrath is what we would get. And if you do not turn to Christ, wrath is what you will get. But we have a God of loving kindness. Before the world was even made, God designed that he would make a world like this, even with all of its pain, and that he would come to wrecked and ruined sinners and draw souls to himself so that those souls, saved out of the curse saved out of the wrath that we were heading towards, 
would love him and glorify him and worship him more than if we had ever had a nice, peachy, easy life and come to glorify him more. So Jesus, fully God, but taking flesh, came to the earth in order to pay the justice price for sin so that all who will come and receive of the grace that is offered would be saved from their sins, made right with God, and given a hope that is so astounding, it's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom how great the grace is. See friends, God would be infinitely wonderful if what he had done is save us from hell and then give us eternal life on an earth like this one, a cursed one where there was still sickness, still pain, still difficulty, we would still worship him forever for sparing us from hell. But what he has done goes so much farther than that. God has not only saved us and delivered us from hell, but has prepared a kingdom for us. And then to go even farther, like as if this is not astounding enough, he brings us into a kingdom, not merely as citizens, not merely as residents, but the king has become our father. The king brings us to himself, adopts us as his children. We are brought to him as sons and daughters of God. Being sons and daughters of God comes with some major privileges. He is a God who delights to give delight to his children. A God who rejoices in giving joy. It makes the heart of God happy to bring goodness to his people. He rejoices over the joy of his children. And one of those privileges, one of those great gifts is that our father invites us to his own table. Christian, you who are truly in Christ, there's a seat for you. There's a seat for you now. And I I say that in one sense, kind of metaphorically, you know how we we kind of say something like uh, the door's always open. Um, If I say that to you, I do not literally mean that we make our front door hang open all of the time. There is an expression that means you're always welcome. So the first way that I say to you, you are invited to the table of your father We mean that in kind of a figurative sense. There is a way in which you are counted as in the household of God, but we also mean that quite literally. There's a table gonna be spread. Christian, you in Christ, there's a seat and it's got your name on it. Our father has not just like laid out a millions and millions of chairs and said, y'all come. There's a seat with your name on it. I have a seat at the father of my of uh, the seat at the table of my father. Christian, he invites us and the Lord's Supper in yet another of its many, many truths that it preaches. It preaches this truth as well. We are invited to the table of the Lord. As we've been studying through the Lord's Supper, we've seen that there's not just one um, truth that is preached uh, in the Lord's Supper. There's one great truth, and that is uh, the crucifixion of our Savior for sins. But then flowing out of that, there are all of these depths, all of these great truths that are preached. And this morning, what I want to do is meditate on one more. Now, we're still introduction here. Let me explain a little bit more. In the passage that we just read a moment ago. The context is addressing this question of whether or not Christians should partake. This was Corinth. This was a city of great wickedness and paganism and festivals in honor of false gods, festivals in honor of Zeus and Jupiter and Hermes and etc. These false gods of the Greeks and the Romans. This was regular life there in this city. These Christians had been saved out of that paganism. And now they had the question, you know, should we go to a festival? Can we eat of meat that has been sacrificed to one of these gods? Or is that dishonoring? 
So there's actually a whole discussion. It's like three chapters of discussion over this right here. It really addresses some of those kinds of difficult areas that we wrestle with as Christians. And there are a number of them that go on there. But part of the point that Paul makes is that by knowingly eating of a sacrifice to a false God, that would be participating in false worship. It's, it's not that the meat itself is demon possessed, like you eat a demon into yourself or something. Paul even says in another place, if you accidentally eat and nobody told you, it's not like you, you tainted yourself. But to know that it was offered would then be to be a sharer. It would be to take part in the worship of a false God. To make that point, he addresses the Lord's Supper. So 16 to 21 there is not all about the Lord's Supper. There's that whole section in chapter 11, which we considered last time that we studied this. But there's this whole section here, and he uses the Lord's Supper as an illustration to explain why it would be wrong to become a sharer with demons there. But what he says is, in verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. Meaning, as we take part in this, we are taking part in an act that communes with Christ. We're taking part in an act of fellowship with Christ and with one another. And then he moves on to address the fact over in verse 21, he refers to the Lord's Supper as partaking of the table of the Lord. So that phrase, the table of the Lord, it is given to us as a way to think of the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's implied when we say the, the title, the Lord's Supper, but also the table of the Lord is preaching this reality that we have table fellowship. We are sharers with God and one another when we come to his table. When we take, partake of the Lord's Supper, we are to think of it in this way. Coming to the table of the Lord, you are invited to come and share in a meal. We practice this ordinance by eating. Now, you might be sitting there going, okay, yeah, but we sure don't eat very much. I'm kind of hungry when we're done. Uh, it's just a little bite there, not much of a meal. But there's actually a couple of reasons for that, by the way, because over in chapter 11, if you remember, one of the things that was happening at the city of Corinth is that in this church, they were abusing the Lord's Supper and so dishonoring Christ. And one of the ways that they were abusing it is some were coming to the Lord's Supper worship time and they were gorging themselves. Some of them were drinking so much of the wine. He actually says they got drunk from the wine that they're, I mean, just, I just still cannot imagine that happening in a church setting, but they were gorging themselves. And so what Paul instructs them is eat before you come so that when you come together, you're eating the Lord's supper and not your own. So part of the point there of what we gather is when we partake of this together, the point is not to have a full meal together so that we get full. The point is a symbolic kind of eating where we remember truths, where we commemorate things. And by the way, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, if you remember when he took the cup and passed it around, each of them, 12 of them, took a sip from one cup. So it's not like they had, you know, goblets in each hand and, you know, bringing it down. They were taking a small amount that was there because this is a symbolic kind of thing. That also may gives us a little bit of Jesus's insight and how he views germs and such as well. They all drank from the same cup. But the point was, there is a small amount that they were partaking in with this. The point is, we eat. We share in a meal. The only other ordinance we have in this new covenant is the ordinance of baptism. It has its own way that it preaches the gospel, not primarily with words, but through actions through a drama that is played out, going under the waters of death and judgment, but raising to new life in Christ. We picture Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, and we picture our own death, burial, and resurrection with him. The Lord's Supper preaches the gospel as well, not primarily through words, but through actions. There's something about tasting the bread, and the cup 
and there are things being preached. So for this morning, here's the question I want to ask. Why a meal? If this meal is meant to preach Christ, then how is he preached in this meal? What truths are preached by the act of eating that we wouldn't get just by words? So why was it instituted like this? What I want to do is address that um, this morning with one of the answers. If you ask the question, why a meal? Um, in the future, I've got two more sermons planned for uh also answers to that question. Why a meal? There are additional things taught as well. But this morning, I want to give you two statements, and then we're going to meditate on just this truth from the two statements. Why a meal? In the Lord's Supper, the truth is preached. God invites us into fellowship with himself. God invites us to his table. So let's meditate on that. When you want to spend time with friends, family, folks that you love, what do we do? Eating isn't the only thing that we do, but isn't it usually the default activity? Why is that? There's something about the way that God has wired us up. There's something about sharing a meal with people that is an act of fellowship. And, and what I mean by an, an act of fellowship is we desire to do it. You desire to get together with those folks that you enjoy out of a desire for fellowship. But then in the doing of it, in the sharing of the meal, your fellowship increases. So it's kind of like asking, all right, so how is it an act of fellowship? All right, husbands, why do you kiss your wives? Well, you kiss them because you have a desire for her. And also in kissing her, your desire increases. It is an act of love. Why do we share in a meal? It is an act of fellowship. By the way, it is interesting that the, the text there that we um, read there a second ago does mention some, some physical ways that there's sharing that takes place as well as some symbolic ones. So what I mean by physical ways are when we get together and we have one of our church meals and everybody brings their side dish and some folks have their famous stuff that they bring, you know, you're, so you're grabbing some of the salad that this person brought and you're bringing some of the persimmon puddings that Wayne and Elaine bring and, and we eat some of those. We're sharing in things that we have brought. There is a physical sharing that takes place. But there's also kind of that uh, figurative sharing with one another we're elbow to elbow. We're having conversation. There's fellowship that is taking place as this is going on. Sharing a meal binds people together. We look around at one another, even without realizing that it's happening. Bonds are formed and strengthened. God just designed us that way. Well, Christian, sharing in a meal as an act of worship before God is not something new in the new covenant. God had been doing this for thousands of years, even before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper actually falls in a long line of meals that God ordained that when they shared in the meal, it was an act of worship. The meal commemorated something and it was an act of worship. Uh, if you were to turn to Exodus 18, 12, uh, we won't right now. What, what you'll find there is that coming out of Egypt, Moses and some of the elders of Israel met with Moses's father-in-law and were told that they shared in a meal. And then here's the last two words of the verse before the Lord. What does it mean that they shared a meal before the Lord? Well, more is revealed just in the next few chapters when God gives his law to the people. God established his law. And we've been mentioning some of these feasts, these festivals that God instituted there. And you, you need to hear the word feast in the word festival, festival. God ordained these holy days. And we've been mentioning some of them in some of the months past and such. Some of these holy days, God would ordain that they were to worship in this particular way. And then on other days in this particular way, it wasn't all feasting. 
some of the days like Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. That was a day God had said for afflicting yourself. This was a day for confession and repentance of sin. So God is worshiped in a serious and solemn kind of way, but God also instituted some feasts and festivals. And I just find it just a completely delightful thing. God wrote into their calendar certain weeks, (laughs) weeks for feasting. Hold a festival and throughout the week, eat and rejoice. Uh, to talk about a couple of them, you know, we've spent some time in Passover. By the way, if anybody is about to die of heat exhaustion, their AC is over there if somebody wants to hit it. Um, but <laughs> hint, hint. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, the Passover festival was one that we've spent some time on already. Remember that it was a week-long festival also called the uh, Unleavened Bread Festival that was there. All the leaven was to be removed from the houses and such, but the highlight of the week was the Passover meal itself. So very similar thing here, a meal that remembered back on truth in order to worship. A meal of bitter foods to remember the bitterness of their time in Egypt. Unleavened bread to symbolize numerous things. Um, Eating of the roasted lamb and then sharing in the wine. As they ate this meal, it was an act of worship. It was done in the presence of God. They retold the events of the Passover. They sang together. They rejoiced. Truths of scripture were preached in all of this. Now, one thing I'd love to do is just work through all of the law and tell you about every feast, but obviously that would take way too long. I'm hoping to address the Feast of Booths again in the next Lord's Supper sermon because there's another connection here. But let me tell you just about one more And this one will help us understand some of the point we're trying to get to and what it means to be invited to the table of the Lord. Over in Deuteronomy 14, we're told about how Israel was to bring their tithes to the Lord. And if if you'd be willing to join me over there for a moment, uh, there's some things I'm going to show you that um, some, depending on your background, depending on some of the ways you were raised, you might not believe unless you see it with your own eyes. But let me set up the scene while you're turning. God told the people that when it was time to bring the tithe, they could bring everything physically, like a tenth of your grain, a tenth of the sheep that had been born to you that year, a tenth of the grapes, a tenth of the wine, a tenth of the money that you had made. And it could be just this whole caravan when they traveled to the city. But God said, if you're traveling a ways, then exchange it for money, bring your tithes into the city. And then there's something really interesting that God tells them to do as part of their worship of bringing in their tithes. God told them that they were to purchase a meal, take some of the money of the tithe and buy a meal for feasting. And in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 14 there, find verse 26 and look at it. Deuteronomy 14, 26. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires. Literally what it reads there is whatever your heart asks of you. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord, the, of the Lord your God, and rejoice, you and your household. Eat in the presence of the Lord and rejoice. Now, there is obviously something there that we need to address, and in certain Christian circles can be pretty controversial. Um, and we do need to spend some time with it. Not because the preacher's looking for something to rant about, that although unbiblical ideas that get popular do irk me badly, but because understanding that truth will help us understand the point of the glory of God that is revealed here. There is glory of God that is robbed by some wrong beliefs that are there. So God tells his people, buy a meal, eat a feast, come together and get the steak. You ever been to a restaurant and you open up the menu 
Um, and you get to look in and you're thinking, man, steak sounds really good. But you look at the price and you're like, okay, chicken strips it is. And you look over there, maybe it's just my cheap heart that's coming out here. But you look at those things and so you end up skipping on the steak because of the price. God says, come to Jerusalem and get the steak. Order the appetizer. Have some wine. Rejoice before the Lord. You are bringing the tithes, which is a symbolic act of worship from all of the provision that I have given you. Come have a feast. Rejoice. I want your heart to be merry. Isn't it interesting how different the Bible is from what a lot of times people think the Bible is like? Isn't it interesting how different Christianity is from what sometimes people make Christianity into? So you, here you have a version of Christianity that sort of, we're going to call it cold self-righteous legalism. You got a version of Christianity that's always looking around for somebody having fun and they, they want to go smack them, you know, and tell them God, you know, that angers God and always looking to suppress joy and thinking this is biblical, and here you got Deuteronomy 14, as well as other passages we're going to take a look at. And God says, get the wine. I want your heart, Mary, and I want you to rejoice in my presence. Come and delight. So obviously this is controversial in certain circles. If you grew up in a church or household that taught that the touching of alcohol is evil, they probably never did a Bible study on Deuteronomy 14, nor Psalm 104, which we'll see here in a little bit. If they taught that, listen, it's not that the folks who taught you that hated Jesus, okay? You and I are going to be wrong on some things as well when we stand before the king. But it's also possible that you could have been raised in a background that had this cold self-righteous legalism. And it wasn't just about this one issue, that there was a way of approaching all of life with this idea that God is eternally grumpy, legalistic like the Pharisees were. You know, you can be saved and be, have some legalism. But legalism in its fullest form is another version of false religion Legalism, the cold, cynical, always thinking God's eternally irritable with everybody kind of false religion. It's ugly. Jesus condemned it. It destroys families. It ruins marriages. It pushes children away. It has a lot of things that it gets wrong, but here is the absolute worst thing that it gets wrong. It gets God himself wrong. It misunderstands the very character of God. Cold legalism thinks of God as the guy who's always yelling at the neighborhood kids to get off his lawn. Cold legalism is always thinking of God. You know, it's like little bop it games where you, the little thing pops up and you smack it. It's always like somebody having fun. God's great mission is to rob everybody of joy and smack so that everybody is always scowling. If you were raised in this, deliverance out of it is like, it's like leaving a world of black and white and coming into a world of color. It is beautiful. And what I want to tell you is there is a glory of God that you have never seen before. And it is beautiful. He's the God who created joy. He is the God of delight. Yes, there are sinful pleasures. Sin is taking something good that God made and being a parasite to it. It is corrupting something good. But understand, the good came first. When God designed this world, this was a world of joy, a world of delight, a world of pleasure. Legalism looks at God as though he's against joy and pleasure and anything that is fun. The true God created sex and intimacy. Sex is good because a good God made it. A God of joy. A God who is the fountain of all pleasures. The kingdom to come is not going to be an eternal frown. He's creating a world of joy. And as one of the 
thousands of good gifts that God has made. You know, the Bible lists off just all kinds of things that eating of good food is a joyful thing. And this is a gift of God. Another one, if you'll flip to Psalm 104 and look at this one with me, Psalm 104, find verse 14. Psalm 104, verse 14, this is a psalm about the gracious provision of God and the goodness that he gives to his creation. Start in verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine, which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food, which sustains many's heart. Again, what is God doing? Why, why did God make wine? Now you could say, well, didn't people do that? The Bible shows that when mankind discovered music, it was God who led to that. God created music, created the joy and gladness of that. And God led to this. Why did God create a world where fermentation was possible? And that when this was made, it would bring cheer to the heart. Because like a cup of coffee is enjoyable and can give something to the body that is pleasurable, a boost of energy. What Psalm 104 says, a glass of wine can be enjoyable and bring cheer to the heart. Now, the point of today is not like, you know, you go home today and somebody asks, what was church about today? <laughs> well, <laughs> pastor gave the 11th commandment, thou shalt drink. That's not the point uh, of today. But the, the point is this, I am attacking legalism. I am attacking a way that God is robbed of his glory because of this idea that God is against fun and against joy. Do you not find it something beautiful about our God? that he has created delights and gives those delights to his people. Now, there are some parentheses that are needed here. So let me take a sidestep here and let's address the parenthesis. We talked about feasting a little bit ago and God said, get the steak. We also need to know that the Bible warns us against living a self-indulgent life. So in other words, it's not a feasting life. It is a life of simplicity and self-control, but with times of feasting and real feasting. There's a reason why we work six days and rest one and not the other way around. And similarly, when it comes to the whole alcohol discussion, I know it's such a, a touchy subject with Christians in America. It's not so much around the rest of the world, but in America, it has been a touchy subject. There are folks who need to stay far away from it because of some issues that are there. The Bible warns against the abuse of it in the same way that God created sex a powerful gift of God, and if it is abused, then there is wreck and ruin that can come. A similar kind of thing with this. The Bible preaches wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. To abuse it is to bring devastation. If you get addicted to coffee, probably not gonna wreck your family and lose your house. But in another kind of way, when it comes to alcohol, there are heavy consequences that can come. So the Bible warns against abuse and not taking in moderation. All of that is there as well in the Bible warnings. So don't anybody leave here and take this as an excuse and do crazy things and said, well, the preacher said, okay, no, but see both of what is being taught in the Bible here. In a basic level, God has given a gift of joy. God has given feasting. God has given delight. God invites his people to come and delight in his presence as an act of worship. We have a long history of it. And Jesus actually instituted the Lord's Supper with wine. Not Welch's grape juice, by the way, but with wine. And by the way, we know that. That's not a guess. We know that. Why did he institute it with wine? So the Lord's Supper was instituted on the Passover meal. The Passover meal had numerous parts to it. Jesus did not take every part. He didn't take the bitter herbs and the bitter foods and make it part of the Lord's Supper. Why did he take what he took? The bread and the cup. 
in order to preach the body and the blood. But he instituted it with wine. And let me give you two reasons why. Number one, because wine is unleavened. Remember that part of the uh, Passover meal, the unleavened part? There was to be no leaven that was in there. Now, just to let you know, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, because of sensitivities and such, we partake with non-alcoholic grape juice and not wine. But one of the things that was developed, uh, kind of the pre-prohibition era, as this became kind of a controversial thing in America, where some methods were developed to pasteurize grape juice so as to make it unleavened. So we are partaking of something that is unleavened in keeping with the Passover that was there. I see nothing in scripture that would demand it have to be alcoholic. So the first reason why the wine is because of the leaven issue. Here's the second. It's this whole principle we are discussing. Wine is for feasting. Wine is for rejoicing. It is for celebrating. Jesus instituted a meal that is serious and solemn. We approach it with careful examination, but it is meant to produce joy. Christian, when we meditate on what Christ has done and we meditate on some of the things we're about to address of the table of the Lord, we are looking at joy producing truths. There is a point to see here, and it's similar to the point of Jesus' first miracle. You remember Jesus' first miracle? When he turned the water into the Welches? And we turned the water into the wine? What are we supposed to see by that? Have you, have you ever considered that? It's the first miracle of Jesus. What's the point? It wasn't just a demonstration of his power. Like all of his other miracles, there are bigger truths being preached. The son of God takes flesh. He comes to this broken, cursed world. He comes to ransom souls from hell and to establish the kingdom of God. The joy fulfilling, soul soaring, gladness producing kingdom of God and the very first miracle, his inaugurating miracle was to come to a wedding feast. And when the wine ran out, he made more so that the feasting and the rejoicing could continue. Guys, there is something beautiful to see about our God in that. Can, can you imagine if that story were retold by legalism, Jesus stood up and he scowled at all of the people who had dared to take a sip of wine and he took the water and turned it into pickle juice to show them. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. Jehovah comes in the flesh, comes to a wedding feast, hang on to the wedding feast, comes to a wedding feast. The wine runs out and he makes more for the joy and the merriment to continue. If you are not stricken by that beauty, have your neighbor elbow you. His loving kindness reaches to the heavens. When the prodigal son returned home, in that parable that Jesus told, the prodigal son represents the, 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 the sinner who repents and comes to God. The prodigal returns home. And do you remember what he said to his father? I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your mere servants. You know, the prodigal son was right. He wasn't wrong. But is that what the father did? No. Seeing him from a long distance away, the father runs. Runs to his son with joy, throws his arms around his son and calls, bring the robe, bring the rings and bring the fatted calf. And how does it end? The father throws a feast. Family and friends are invited and the son is seated at a table. This is the character of our God. He is a banquet throwing father. 
a feast preparing father and he has invited us to his table. Yes, we talk about the wrath, the judgment, the severity of God, and we must talk about those things. Behold, the kindness and severity of God. But we must not miss the glory of our father who rejoices to hold feast and invite us to them. The Lord's Supper is a meal for the same reason that the Old Testament feasts were meals of worship. There is a truth preached about the glorious, loving character of our Father. So Christian, every time we partake, one of the truths that we are to be meditating on and preaching again and reminding ourselves on is our position at the table of our father, the Mephibosheth-like seat that we have, an invitation to come and eat always. Yes, we are unworthy, but the king has invited us. And in a miracle, the king has become our father. The meal commemorates, commemorates the very way that our father made our seat at the table possible, the sacrifice of Christ. The meal preaches that sacrifice and preaches our place at the table. My friend, this meal also preaches our place at a different table, a table at a time to come. If you remember one of the sentences that we keep repeating in each of these sermons of the Lord's Supper, it's not original to me, I'm not that smart, but in the Lord's Supper, we look up to the cross, we look around to one another, we look inward to prepare, and what's the last part? We look ahead to glory. On the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said of the cup, this is Matthew 26, 27 and 29, and I'm winding down, Jesus said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But then listen to this part. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Do you realize what Jesus just said there? Jesus was showing that this meal, this Lord's Supper meal is a shadow of an even bigger meal. There is a meal that we will share in when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness and Jesus is waiting for us. The next time Jesus takes a sip of wine will be at that meal. This meal preaches what Jesus addressed in Matthew 8 when he said many will come from east and west and will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it preaches Revelation 19. This great act at the consummation of the ages, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christian, can you imagine? No, we can't, but it's helpful to try. Imagine what that day will be like. Imagine the table that will be spread. Imagine the glory of that day. When Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding feast, he was doing more than just showing his power. He was picturing a day of another wedding feast, the great wedding feast, when there would be a miracle of wine created once again. And then after he performed that miracle, do you remember what the guests came up to the host and said? He said, most people serve the best wine first and they save the poorer stuff for later. You have saved the best for last. Christian, Jesus has saved his best for last. There is a wedding feast to come, the marriage supper of the lamb. The church, the bride of Christ will be joined to our savior for eternity and we will feast and he has saved his best for last and Jesus is waiting for you. So Christian, come and partake. Partake of only a taste for now. Eat of this little piece of bread. Let the grain and the salt touch your tongue and let it whet your appetite for a greater feast to come. Drink of the cup and make it 
make it have us long for the day when a full table will be spread. Come, partake, rejoice, and glory. This is another reason why the Lord's Supper is only for those who have turned to Christ to be saved and have and have been baptized, which is the first ordinance, the ordinance that marks us off as believers. It's because if you are not in Christ, you know, we're not trying to be mean. God's not trying to be mean when he says you are not to partake because you do not have a seat at the table. But the good news, the greatest news of eternity is that Jesus died and rose so that you can. The second greatest news is there's still time. The door is still open. Come to Christ. Come and believe. Turn from your sins. Look to Christ for salvation. Call out to him and God will save you. God will adopt you as his child and invite you to his table. Christian, God invites you to come. But he tells us that when we come, we are to come carefully after having examination. So what I want to do now is as we often do, just give a couple of minutes for final confession of sin and prayer. And then I'll give you instructions after we're done. So if you'll bow. We worship you and thank you every time that we learn a new truth and see the, the wonder and the glory of that truth. We're once again overwhelmed and amazed. We worship you and thank you for adopting us as sons and daughters bringing us to your very table, giving us this exceptional grace. We worship you now. We will worship you forever. And we pray, oh God, help us as we partake of this ordinance that will do so in a way that pleases you. Help us to remember and look forward, to long for that day. Forgive us of our sins, oh God, we pray. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.